Okay, great. Well, we are uh, looking now at Mark's Gospel and the passage that uh, Alistair read to us. Uh, it's a passage that's described by some commentators as the climax of Mark's Gospel. And the reason for that is, I mean, think about it. What is the major question that Mark has had us grapple with, certainly in the first half, but throughout the Gospel? The question is, who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And at his trial, it is that question that becomes the central life-defining issue. And yet, as our man said at the beginning, this isn't just about the trial of Jesus. He's not the only one who is on trial. It's also the account of the trial of Peter. And it's not just the identity and the character of Jesus that is in the spotlight. It is Peter's, which, of course, is where it gets challenging for you and for me. Because if here we see Peter under pressure, what are you like when you're under stress? What are you like when you're being accused of stuff? What, What are you like when you're facing pressure? And what would people say about you when you're under pressure? And where are are we supposed to find the resources to live a life of truth and integrity and faithfulness when we are up against the wall? Well, as we saw last week, at his arrest, Jesus was abandoned by all the disciples. And Mark tells us now he is led away to the high priest, and his trial before the council of the Sanhedrin. But Mark adds, verse 54, and Peter had followed him at a distance. So before we look at anything else, could that describe you? Could that describe you? I mean, maybe you would or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but in some sense or another, you are following Christ in, in one way or another but you're keeping your distance. Could that be you? You're neither fully in nor fully out, and you're not fully his. In fact, look what Mark says Peter did. He entered, verse 54, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And these are almost certainly the guards that arrested Jesus. So at one level, for Peter to do this, this requires courage, doesn't it? This is like he is going into the lion's den. And yet, what is he trying to do there? He's trying to blend in. He's trying to stay somewhat close to Jesus, stay around Jesus, but at the same time, mingle with the crowd and not stand out. And as we're going to see, that kind of compromise rarely goes well. So, Jesus in the room above the courtyard, he stands alone. First point then, the character of Jesus. Okay, let me ask you, what are you like under pressure? Um, you, You might say, well, I thrive under pressure. That is when I am at my most productive. Or you might say, hey, frankly, you know, I actually need the deadline. I need the pressure of a deadline to finally knuckle down and do some work. Sure, but what about your character? 
And what would those who are closest to you say you are like when you're stressed? Or others attack you for good or for bad reasons? Or when they criticise your actions or, or question your motives? What are you like? What, what if your character comes out? Because that is the situation that Jesus finds himself in, in the early hours of this Friday morning. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They've already decided what they think about him, haven't they? Now it's just a matter of finding enough evidence to stick. And Mark tells us, verses 55 and 56, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now, earlier this week, uh, one of my daughters uh, showed me a meme called The Three Hardest Things to Say. The Three Hardest Things to Say. Number one, I was wrong. Number two, I need help. Number three, Worcestershire sauce. Okay, that first one, particularly if you've got a lift, that is hard. Okay, um, that first one, I was wrong. Do you find that easy to say? That's hard, even when we know that we have done something wrong. Even when we know it, it can be hard to admit and not to defend ourselves. How much harder is it to stay silent when you are being falsely accused. I mean, when that happens, you just know, you feel this urge rising up inside you to defend yourself. And yet Mark tells us, Jesus stayed silent. There is this succession of witnesses coming against him whose testimony does not agree. And Mark says, verse 16, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? But he remained silent and made no answer. Just imagine that. Here he is. He is on trial for his life. And he's never hesitated to answer anybody's questions in the past. But now he says nothing in his own defense. I once heard a guy called Campbell McAlpine, who was a great Bible teacher, He used Jesus' example here to say, never defend yourself. Never defend yourself. Now his point was not, we should never under any circumstances defend ourselves from false accusation. His point was that frequently we can be just that little bit too sensitive about our reputations. Whereas God sometimes seems strangely less concerned about our reputations than we are. Think about it. What man can stand, what kind of man can stand, what kind of person can stand on trial like this, knowing that his life is on the line and hear false accusation after false accusation and not give in to that urge to defend himself? Only a man who knows that his life and his reputation are in God's hands. Now, of course, in today's courts, a a refusal to answer a question can be 
taken as, or it can be interpreted as evidence of guilt. With this man, it's the opposite, isn't it? With Jesus, it is the opposite. It is evidence of his character. It is evidence of his innocence, of his security in what his heavenly father thinks of him, which is the only opinion that ultimately matters. And yet, as he stands there silent, you can almost hear the echoes of the prophet Isaiah talking about the suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, of course, if you look, Mark only gives us the details, the specific details of one of these charges brought against him. Verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. As we're going to see, it is the same charge that is thrown at Jesus as he hangs on the cross. But as Mark tells us, verse 59 Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And that is because while Jesus did predict the destruction of the temple, nowhere did he say that he would personally do it or that he would rebuild it physically three days later. And yet this accusation keeps on coming up. So they've got, they, they have, his accusers have clearly picked up on something, haven't they? Because after Jesus cleansed the temple, and the religious leaders demand, by what authority do you do this stuff? John, in his gospel, records Jesus replying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us they thought he was meaning the physical temple, the building in front of them, whereas John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay, so what these false witnesses have failed to get is that Jesus was linking his death and his resurrection with the future destruction of the temple in AD 70. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, that temple ceased to have any point. Because from the point of Jesus' death and resurrection onwards, you do not need animal sacrifices. You do not need the elaborate rules of ritual washing for you to be able to draw near to God. Why not? Because now Jesus is the ultimate temple. He's the way that you can approach God. It's through him that you can meet with God. But it's that question of who is he? Who is he claiming to be that gets the high priest on his feet? Second point then, the identity of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the identity of Jesus. Now this Sanhedrin, this council that Jesus is standing in front of, had the authority to impose the death penalty in just one case. And that is the case of the defilement if, the, if someone defiles the temple. Everything else, every other so-called capital charge, had to go to the Roman authorities. And they have just failed to land the charge of temple defilement on Jesus. And so the high priest switches attack. Verse 61, again the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Why ask that? 
Well, because if Jesus replies yes, not only will that satisfy their, their, their Jewish grounds for guilt on a charge of blasphemy, if he claims to be the Messiah, a revolutionary king, that would be grounds for a charge of treason and execution under the Romans. And Jesus has claimed to have authority to forgive sins. He has redefined the Sabbath around himself. He has demonstrated an undeniable authority over demons. He has entered Jerusalem on a donkey enacting the coming of the great king and he's cleansed the temple predicting its destruction so the obvious question is who do you think you are except what the high priest literally says is even clearer because what he literally says is you are the christ the son of the blessed so if the first half of this gospel built to Peter's declaration, you are the Christ. Now, as the gospel reaches its climax, the high priest, the chief of Jesus' accusers, uses those exact same words. You are the Christ? And he uses them in a contemptuous question. And the irony is that because son of the blessed is a way of saying son of God without mentioning God's name, the clearest declaration in the gospel of who Jesus is comes not from Jesus' lips or even from the disciples' lips. It comes from the mouth of his chief accuser, the high priest. And in response to that question, Jesus breaks his silence, but not to defend himself, but to confirm his identity. Verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Yes, that is who I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And you will see me, the Son of Man, the one Daniel saw in his vision, to whom all authority and power and kingdom are given, you will see me seated at the right hand of God. And this is Jesus' trial. But his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement are his vindication. And whereas here the high priest and the Sanhedrin dishonor Jesus, God is going to give him the highest honor. And while now he stands on trial before them, the day is going to come when he returns and they and all of us will stand on trial before him because he says, you will see me come with the clouds of heaven. And it's this, it's his identity that secures the guilty person. Verses 63 and 64. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, okay, you are probably wary of this whole idea of blasphemy, okay, accusing people of blasphemy, particularly in the age of 
Salman Rushdie and Islamic fatwas. So I very much doubt, if you're not a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, I doubt very much that anyone in the room thinks of Jesus in terms of is he blaspheming or is he, is he not? Even so, you, if you're not yet a Christian, you have got to settle this question of who Jesus is. You've got to settle that in your own mind. And C.S. Lewis famously said that you have got three options. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. He either is who he says he is, or he isn't who he says he is, and he knows he isn't. He's a liar, or he's just crazy. Ask yourself, as you see him standing on trial, as you watch him throughout the gospel, does he seem like a liar to you? Does he seem crazy to you? Isn't he rather the opposite? Of all people, he's the one who speaks the truth. Of all people, he's the one who's in his right mind. Now, of course, more recently, uh, modern atheists have suggested there is another option, a fourth option, and that is that the Gospels are simply made up, that this Jesus didn't actually exist. As we're going to see with Peter, the Gospels repeatedly present the leaders of the early church in a highly critical light. Why would you make that up? If this is all fabricated, why would you make that up? They're not massaging the truth. They're doing the opposite. Rather than massaging the truth, the Gospels give every sign of presenting the unvarnished truth. The one person who comes out shining in it all is the man who is on trial. And that's the other great irony of the trial. While the high priest accuses Jesus of blasphemy, in reality it is him who is blaspheming the Son of God. As they spit on him and blindfold him and beat him, they demand, verse 65, prophesy. They want him to tell them who hit him. Think of the irony of that. Because since Peter's confession of you are the Christ, back in chapter 8, Jesus has repeatedly prophesied that he would be arrested and beaten and killed by the very men he is now standing in front of. But ask yourself, if he is who he says he is, why does he allow himself to be treated like this? Why not just blast the lot of them, if he has that kind of power? Why not bring forward the future judgment into the present? Why not? For the sake of the other man who is on trial, and for all of those like him. Third point then, the failure of Peter. And if you noticed, this passage uh, gives us another of Mark's famous sandwiches. Okay, he begins by telling us that Peter followed Jesus at a distance, entered the courtyard, was warming himself by the fire. Then he breaks off and gives us the trial of Jesus. But now he returns to Peter, verse 66, below in the courtyard. Why do that? Because like in all of his other sandwiches, he wants you to compare these two things that are going on. He wants you to compare Peter under trial in the courtyard below, with Jesus on trial in the room above. But whereas Jesus 
faces the powerful Sanhedrin, sorry, whereas Jesus faces the powerful Sanhedrin, Peter faces verse 66, one of the servant girls. And she recognizes him from somewhere, doesn't she? Verse 67, seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But verse 68, he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Interesting, isn't it? In the room above, Jesus has stood silent before his accusers. He's slow to speak. Down below in the courtyard, Peter is quick to speak, quick to defend himself, quick to deny that he had anything to do with Jesus. Earlier that night, Peter had vowed that he would never abandon Jesus, even on pain of death. And at Jesus' arrest, Peter was willing to use physical violence and wield a sword against the leader of the arrest party. But now, before a young servant girl, he cannot bring himself to admit that he is a follower of Christ. Why not? Well, she's a servant of the high priest. She's a colleague of the man whose ear he has just sliced off. And Jesus is on trial for his life. That is not someone you want to be associated with. Fear and self-preservation are powerful motivators, aren't they? They can make us say and do things we shouldn't do, and they can make us not say and do things we should do. Listen, you can be you can be the alpha male, or alpha female, whatever the equivalent is. Okay, you can be the alpha male before a crowd coming with clubs, when you have got a sword in your hand and you've got your mates behind you watching. You can, you can act like that. You, you can be the great defender of the truth in your online discussion groups. And then fall before a servant girl. It is a reminder that the character-shaping and life-defining moments are often not the seemingly great ones. They are the ones that might otherwise appear trivial. Like, how do you handle the temptation to speak or to stay silent in that conversation at the water cooler? Or with your friend over a beer? Or with your wife or with your husband. It's what you do when no one else is looking. And it seems like it doesn't matter. And so as you watch Peter stumble, keep in mind Paul's words. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Because the temptation to deny Christ rarely, if ever, comes in the form of a crowd with clubs or a council threatening your life. It comes in those small moments that seem no threat at all. But of course, Jesus has predicted that Peter would deny him three times, and maybe he is just realizing that he is one down. And so Peter moves away, verse 68, and he went out into the gateway. But if you think about it, as he moves into the shadows, he is also moving away from Jesus. He is positioning himself closer to the exit in case he needs to make a run for it. But he doesn't leave totally, does he? 
So verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. I mean, think about it. It's two or three in the morning, at least by now. What's he doing there? If he's not one of the guards and he's not with Jesus, then, then why is he there? And so Mark tells us, verse 70, but again he denied it. That is the nature of sin, isn't it? You start down a road and it is pretty hard to turn back. Like a small rock falling that can then cause a landslide, sin can take on a momentum all of its own and one sin leads to another. We tell an untruth and we find ourselves having to cover our tracks. We click on one thing and we find ourselves going back to click again. We entertain critical thoughts, and what we find is criticism spirals in our hearts. And having denied Jesus once, Peter does it again. But he doesn't end at two. Verse 17. After a little while, the bystanders, bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now, I have been known to mistake a Canadian for a Californian, okay, but clearly there is no mistaking a Galilean accent, is there? And verse 71, Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This man. So what do you think of Jesus? Not so long ago, Peter had proclaimed Jesus was the Messiah. Now he dismisses him as this man. As one commentator put it, puts it, Peter manages to deny Jesus without ever using his name. Upstairs, Jesus has just confirmed his identity, knowing that it would cost him his life. Downstairs at the gate, to save his own life, Peter can't even bring himself to name him. You know, after saying Jesus was the Messiah, you know, Jesus asks the disciples, Peter, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, you're the rock. And as one commentator says, that rock has now hit rock bottom and nothing can stop the cock crowing. Verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed. And that sound broke Peter. Verse 72 again, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Listen, temptation and sin always promise to make you happy, or happier, to keep you safe. In reality, it always ends in tears, either in this life or in the next life. As Psalm 16 puts it, the sorrows of those who run after another God, whether that's the God of safety or the God of popularity, the, the sorrows of those people shall multiply. Okay, but think what this comparison of Jesus on trial and Peter on trial would have meant for Mark's first readers. Because they're heading for trial. And interestingly, they would also, almost certainly have known Peter as a friend as a leader in their church. And they would have known that what Mark writes here is Peter's account of Jesus's life. So this is Peter's account of his own fall. 
that would have reinforced the very message that Peter has been preaching to them. Don't put your trust in men. Don't put your trust in me. Don't put your trust in Caesar. Don't put your trust in some political leader. Put your trust in Christ. He's the only one who stands firm. But it would have told them something else as well, wouldn't it, as they approach their time of trial. You know, less than 60 years after Mark wrote this, the Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, there was a Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger wrote to the Emperor Trajan asking for advice on what to do with all of these Christians who are multiplying in his province. People who, Pliny said, are engaged in the depraved superstition that is Christianity. Interesting, isn't it, that we live in a day when that same kind of accusation is being made. And Pliny explained to Trajan, he's asking what he should do, because he explains to him that when, you know, when I go and arrest these Christians, send out the guards and arrest them, we ask them three times whether they're Christians, three opportunities, like Peter, to, to deny Christ. If they admitted it, they were executed. If they denied that they were Christians, they had to prove it by worshipping an image of the emperor and by cursing Christ. And that, wrote Pliny, was a thing which, it is said, genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. And Mark's first readers are facing increasing level of opposition for their faith, for their refusal to deny Christ. There was an easy way out, wasn't there? As there is for you and for me. The easy way out is to take the way of Peter and to deny Christ. Because to bear witness to him can be costly. So why do it? Why do it then? Why do it now? Last point, the grace of Jesus. Well, if, Peter's, uh, if Mark's uh, first readers knew uh, Peter, and if they knew um, him as a friend, as they almost certainly did, they would have known how this story ended, or how the story of Peter's life ended. Because if here, Peter runs from a servant girl, within a few weeks, before a crowd of thousands at Pentecost, he will stand up and publicly proclaim Christ and his allegiance to him. And the day came when Peter himself stood in front of this same Sanhedrin. And he was ordered to stay silent about Jesus, not talk about and Peter refuses. You are not going to stop me talking about him. And in AD 64, under Nero's persecution, Peter himself was crucified for Christ. What explains that transformation? It is the grace of Christ. It is the power of the Spirit. It is that Peter knew why. Jesus had stayed silent and not saved himself because he had done it to save him, Peter, and you and me. You see, Jesus' silence is not just the quiet dignity of a man who is falsely accused. It is the silence of the lamb going to the slaughter. It is the silence of a man who knows it is his father's will that he should give his life in Peter's place 
and in your place and in my place. That he would give his life as a ransom for many. And it's not the false testimony of others that convicts him. It's his own testimony about himself that condemns him. So that Peter and you and I can go free. And after his resurrection, Jesus met with Peter and restored him. And at Pentecost, he filled him with his spirit. And that is what transformed Peter. Okay, but listen, all of us have felt like him, haven't we? In one way or another. I mean, all of us in one way or another have denied Christ. Maybe your heart has grown cold towards God. Maybe you have denied Jesus with your words or with your actions. Maybe you call it yourself a Christian, maybe you are a Christian, but your life would say otherwise. The way you treat your husband or your wife or your friends or your colleagues might say otherwise. In our words or our actions, all of us have denied Christ. Maybe, like Peter, that first sin has snowballed. Well, look at Jesus being condemned as guilty, that you might be declared innocent and know that he welcomes you back, just like he welcomed Peter back. And let that be what gives you the courage to bear witness to him when it would be easier and safer and more comfortable to head towards the gate like Peter did. Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna in the years immediately after the apostles. He was likely ordained by the apostle John and like Peter, he was eventually caught up in one of the uh, Roman persecutions against Christians, but he was an old man by that stage. And so the Roman proconsul offered him a ch chance to get away, you know, offers him the chance to deny Christ and you can go free, Polycarp. Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been Christ's servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And for that, Polycarp was burnt at the stake. Guys, that almost certainly will not be required of us. But there might be a price to pay. So look to Christ, who paid the ultimate price for you, and know that no one ever gave up anything for him that in any way compared what he gave up for us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father.